Good morning, family. It is a good morning, and y'all are family. It's good to be here. We're going to be talking about church discipline this morning. I know if you uh, look across the church landscape today, it's probably a very foreign concept. So let me say that again. We're going to be talking about church discipline this morning. Um, Our text, our reading this morning is going to come from Matthew 18. So if you would go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 18, that classic text. I'm going to start in verse 15. And if you'll read aloud with me, and um, again, if As we mention every morning, if you don't have a Bible, please grab that one that's near your feet somewhere. We we want your eyeballs on the text of the scripture to see this for yourself. Matthew 18, and let's read this together. I'm going to go verse 15 through 20, that entire section there. Let's read together. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I wanted to start, when I, when I think about church discipline and I thought about preparing this, I always like to think about why, especially with church discipline, why is it, I, I'd be, I know I'm coming against this, this headwind of, of postmodernist thought, this idea that it's not really practiced very well in the church today. What is, what's the issue? What, what are these major roadblocks that's stopping us from seeing this for what it is and simply obeying it. And that's just it. It got me thinking about how influential our, our age of this postmodern era that we're in is, is affecting this issue. So real quick, I wanted to um, go over a couple of objections and misconceptions that I see that really um, we need to deal with before we can receive a right understanding of church discipline. The first idea is that church discipline just seems judgmental. To, you know, in the postmodern thought, um, in an era in an era where there's no absolute truth, how can you how can you correct a brother? You know, the, the mantra of our day is, or of the postmodern movement especially, is, is who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? And how can we take that type of thought and mesh that with church discipline? And in, in, oh, again, it's it's influenced the church. We, we'll. Christians are quick to go to Matthew 7, the judge not passage, doesn't Jesus tell us? So let's go there. I just want to read that passage and quickly address that. I'll just read it for you, but it is Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's this log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Well, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage is a warning against being hypocritical in your judgment from a self-righteous enthroned position. It's not that you shouldn't correct your brother. And we'll get back into that later. And to those who may confuse church discipline with church taking on God's role as judge, I would say this. The church does not perform acts of condemnation in church discipline or, or even hand down God's condemnation. Only God is judge. Church discipline, rightly administered, is always motivated by a desire for restoring someone from sin and for seeing God's name upheld as holy in his church. We are to represent Christ as, as holy to the world. God has always desired to purge the evil from among his covenant people. That's not a new issue to the church age. The other issue is that uh, people see it as, people, people see this idea of church discipline as um, difficult because it's divisive, right? We just, we, we don't want to rock the boat. We, we feel that um, we want unity and peace. Um, so no one wants to get into this church discipline issue because it just seems so uh, divisive. I wanted to um, quote John MacArthur real quick and, and, and mention something here because he says, with regard to church discipline being divisive, he says, we know love that is more concerned for superficial calm in the church than for its spiritual purity is not God's kind of love. We may think that by not rebuking and correcting our brother or sister in their sin helps maintain unity by preventing or avoiding any conflict. That thinking couldn't be any further from the truth because true and deep unity is achieved through the sometimes messy and arduous process of church discipline. Just look at the hopeful outcome that we see in verse uh, 15 here of Matthew 18. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's unity, and that's our hope in every step of church discipline. We hope to gain unity through a restored relationship that's been broken by sin. We must be careful not to call for unity in the church while disregarding sin, which only leads to disunity. Superficial unity is no unity. But caring for one another and for God's reputation in the church, that will lead to practicing church discipline and its resulting strong, intimate bond of brotherhood in the church. So let's do away with the false notion that church discipline is divisive in the church. It's actually... The only division it makes is to divide between the church and the world. That's exactly what it does. And that creates unity in the church. Okay, let's, let's go back now and start with verse 15. I'm really going to walk through this passage. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, when do we start this process? Every time we see someone mess up, are we quick to, to jump in and start step one of the church discipline process? 
right? We would be the eager beavers about this, and every time we see someone mess up, we're just going to go after them? No. The entire process here must be predicated on love and care and desire for unity and purity. It's not about having a chance to correct someone and show yourself to be the one in the right. With church discipline being truly an issue of love and conflict, I want to bring in the light of a few cross-references in Scripture that speak to this issue of when, how, and why we go to our brother. And let these passages help us develop a right view of this passage before we walk through the actual process of church discipline. First one I want to share is Proverbs 19.11. It says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So don't be hypersensitive to quickly, talking, to, to quickly taking personal offense at every little perceivable wrong you come across. That's, that's, that's the informing nature of this wisdom of this proverb. God, you know, God doesn't discipline us every time we mess up. Love must serve as the foundation, the root cause, and the motivating factor in every step of the church discipline process. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and lay this foundation of love in discipline. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is that classic uh, defining passage on love. And it says, love is patient. It's the first thing, patient. It's not eager to rashly call out every little sin in others. And kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And finally, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These last three points I want to touch on, that it believes all things, love hopes all things, and endures all things. It's not always immediately clear to, to everyone. What does that mean, that love believes all things, or love hopes all things? Let me just touch on this. <clears throat> if church discipline is to be done in love, it will not violate any of these characteristics of love. So let's look at these. Love believes all things. What does that mean? It is loving to give the benefit of the doubt. Just as it is hurtful or rude to quickly accuse and make rash judgments against someone, questions should precede accusations. Love wants to believe the best in a person. Love hopes all things. Every step in church discipline is done with the hope of restoration. We're doing this, we're, we're walking through this process because we're hoping, we're hopeful for restoration. How, how Contrast that with a heart that just wants to quickly get at someone and, and prove that you're in the right or to prove someone wrong. And that hope even includes the last step of church discipline, to put them out of your midst and fellowship because after every step, we are watching hoping for signs of repentance, that we may gain a brother. That's the heart of love, and it reflects the right motive in church discipline. Love hopes for the best in a person. And finally, love endures all things. Guys, this is, this is the big one. We never begin church discipline because we've just finally reached our breaking point with someone. I've had it with John. 
You know, I, that's it. I'm, I'm going to have to talk to him about this. You know, we, we don't go to our brother to, to get something off my chest. Um, that just makes it about me rather than about my brother. We always, through the entire process, we're enduring the sin of our brother while pursuing him and walking with him to bring him back to right fellowship. A couple more passages on this issue of church discipline, love in church disciplines. Well, one is 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. There's another phrase. <clears throat> People don't quickly get what that means. Love covers a multitude of sins. How so? What does that mean? Well, in one sense, it speaks to the issue of church discipline because a loving brother who rescues a lost sheep saves them from the multitude of sins that they otherwise would have continued in. In fact, James chapter 5, 19 through 20, says essentially that. He writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, you see church discipline in this? Let him know. Let that person know who brings back the brother who executed on church discipline. Let that person know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the foundation of love in, in church discipline. That we need, to come, we need to come to church discipline with that perspective from that, from that angle. And just being, if we're, if we're literally saturated in this motive and perspective of love, we won't mess up in the process. Let's go back to, um, so step one, if, you're, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I see four phrases in here that I want to break down one by one. So the first one, if your brother sins against you, okay, this is the grounds on which to begin. Your grounds for confronting another believer in step one is only to be on the grounds of objective, observable facts, not your subjective feelings. To tell someone you hurt my feelings or you offended me is not adequate grounds. If that were the case, Jesus would be under church discipline many times over. In Matthew 15, 10 through 12, it says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, this was pointed words that Jesus gave. He's just declaring a truth. The Pharisees are, are listening in. Nothing wrong with what Jesus said. He was certainly offensive to some. In verse 12, I love this. Then the disciples came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, um, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I mean, you know. It, you know, obviously there's no legitimate grounds to go tell Jesus his fault. Okay, likewise, just because the Pharisees were offended does not serve as grounds for Jesus to need to apologize. Now, hurt feelings may be involved, but they're not to be the basis of your concern. Rather, be sure to identify the sin involved, whether it's rudeness, impatience, pride, selfishness, whatever it is, identify the sin at the root of the issue that needs to be addressed and repented of. Don't make it about your hurt feelings. You're not here to make the brother or sister feel bad about what they've done to you. Remember, love endures all things. If your brother sins against you, that 
is the appropriate ground on which to begin church discipline. We're not to be um, immature, hypersensitive, and quick to take offense. So let's guard ourselves from being offended on insufficient grounds. James 1.19 says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So let, us, let this be our guide in church discipline. Okay, so if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Big word here, but a small word, go. The verb is the command here. Regarding the command to go, I want to start by sharing something that Jay Adams shared in his book, um, Handbook on Church Discipline. And he says, he says, all the reservations, objections, and hesitations that people have about discipline are irrelevant. Jesus does not leave the matter up to us. He tells us what to do. So if there, if there are problems about pursuing church discipline, there's, there's difficulty in trying to assess a situation, whatever, whatever the problem may be, he expects you to solve them. He does not allow them to short-circuit the process. Any objections are irrelevant. Go. That is to say, any feelings of being ill-equipped or unqualified to lovingly approach a brother or sister in sin is no excuse to not be obedient and go and tell him his fault. To say, who am I to correct my brother? It seems so self-righteous. That's just a weak cop-out. And it's disobedient, let alone unloving response. You say, what about the passage in Matthew 7 on seeing a speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye? Well, yes, first remove the log from your own eye. The passage is a warning to not be a hypocrite in your correction of others. Not to say you shouldn't do it. In fact, it ends with, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let's pause here at the command to, to go in verse 15 and consider the prior context as it's very illuminating on the heart and motive to go and tell him his fault. So I'm going to go back to um, the parable of the lost sheep, which uh, starts in verse 12. Um, but before I read the parable, uh, quickly, look at what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. That, that's what he says right before the parable of the lost sheep. And I'm going to go back to that word despise. But keep that in your mind. Now, Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, the analogy between the, the straying lost sheep and the, the, the brother who sins is immediately clear. In verse 12, we have, if one of them has gone astray, this is the brother who sins in verse 15, right? The good shepherd will go in search of the sheep that went astray. Likewise, we are to show our care for our brother in sin by going to him and telling him his fault. The shepherd shows us what love he has for each individual sheep, that he is willing to leave the 99 on the mountain that are not in imminent danger because he's so concerned for the one that is astray and at risk of being lost forever. The command here is the verb go. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, just as the good shepherd 
will go in search of the straying sheep. But this brings me back to that phrase, do not despise, in verse 10, because that's the contrast here. What we see is that to go, as opposed to not going, to go is the opposite of what we're warned not to do in verse 10 there, which is to despise. It's a strong word. We don't think that by not going, we're actually despising that person. Do not despise, which is exactly what we do when we see a brother beginning to go astray and we don't care enough to go and correct a serious matter. And seeing a brother living in sin is a serious matter. Next phrase, between you and him alone, alone. One thing we need to see here is that keeping the matter private is clearly inferred in the Matthew 18 process. We only widen that circle of those who know of the sin as is needed to progress through the church discipline process. We have to be careful to guard ourselves from, from gossip at every stage here because that's, that's something to think about, especially in this context because we're, we're typically, we may be hurt or, or offended, we may be angry over an issue, and that's really going to lead us to want to chatter about it. Now, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, this is always the motive and hoped-for outcome of addressing sin in someone. This is why we went to our brother. We had hoped to gain him back. So sin creates separation in relationships. Church discipline just seeks to restore a tight unity that has been broken by sin. One quick example of this, as practiced by the Apostle Paul, was when he rebuked Peter for his sin, as mentioned in Galatians 2.11. I'll skip the details of that particular sin, but it was, it was a serious sin. And it says, Paul, it says, Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul wasn't condemning him. He saw that Peter stood condemned. He rebuked him because he saw that Peter stood condemned and he loved him enough to address it. We see the unifying effect of that rebuke later because in Peter's second letter to the church, he refers to Paul as his, quote, beloved brother, an especially endearing term. No doubt Paul's caring rebuke of Peter helped establish that intimate brotherhood Paul had gained his brother, who stood condemned. Peter came to deeply appreciate Paul's rebuke. Let's go on to verse 16 and discuss the, the witnesses that a matter may be established. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. But if he does not listen, when do we take this next step and, and gather one or two others? Well, adequate time to hear and respond must be given. There's no, there's no time formula for this, for determining when we can definitively say, he is not listening. It's been 30 seconds, and so I need to go get two or three others. You know, um, there's, no, there's not that, um, that kind of defining formula. Discernment and wisdom is obviously called for to establish whether there are signs of softening in someone's heart, whether, they're, uh, whether the offender is listening, if he has, quote, ears to hear. And if you're having productive conversations on the issue, if so, you would typically give more time to discuss the matter. You're working through the issue with someone. See, we're not, again, we're not quick to take that to the next step. We wait and when we see that he's not listening, 
But whether it's immediately clear or over the course of much time, we must not neglect obedience and allowing sin to continue unabated in your brother's life as we fail to take the next step. We don't just keep praying and hoping and kicking the can down the road as our brother is seriously caught in sin. So the next phrase is, you know, take one or two others along with you. Well, in reading about this, Jay Adams, I think, helped me me see this, but says, when, to take one or two others with you as that next step, this is why absolute confidentiality must never be promised at any stage in, ter- in church discipline. Because we must always be prepared to take the next step if necessary. Promising someone absolute confidentiality will either prevent you from taking the next step of discipline, because how could you then gather one or two others? Or how could you all serve as a witness to the church? Or if you don't take the next step, or if you, I'm sorry, if you do take the next step of discipline, you'd be forced into a position to break your promise of absolute confidentiality. This is an issue that we need to be aware of. The, the scripture nowhere asks us or calls us to promise someone absolute confidentiality. Let's not be foolish with our words and put ourselves in that position. We must always practice appropriate and caring confidentiality and not promise more than that. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That a charge may be established. This issue of needing multiple, more than one person, at least two, two to three people, to get to establish a matter is nothing new. Again, this goes back to a very, the principle and the character of God and his justice. Back to Numbers 35.30, we hear, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall not be put to death on the evidence of witness, I'm sorry, the the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, plural, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And finally, Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. I can't make it more clear than that, but that's, that's how a matter is established, right? This Old Testament law of establishing a testimony only on the basis of at least two witnesses displays that something about God's design of justice. He's concerned about a fair hearing. A single avenger cannot execute this unfounded witch hunt on his enemy. And because this law is reflective of God's nature, which never changes, this principle of two witnesses to establish a matter still holds true in the church today. We see that in 2 Corinthians 13.1. The context here is Paul warning the Corinthian church the church discipline may be necessary when he comes. He's, he's writing before he would come back to them. He's already been to them once. And he says, he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And he's, he's speaking of someone who may need to be put out of the church when he comes to visit them. No single individual ever holds the credibility to establish a matter. We are all susceptible of seeing something the wrong way. So God's design 
is that it takes at least two people to establish credibility. I want you to notice also the, the care that God gives in this process to the privacy that is honored. After the accused refuses to listen to the one, that one is not permitted to begin feeding the church grapevine. It must remain a private matter among only those two or three individuals who have already committed themselves and lovingly walking through this church discipline process with, this, with the accused in a, to do it in a biblical manner. This shows so much care to the accused person. Holding the matter private is a powerful show of love that can aid in the softening of the accused that will more likely lead to repentance. It shows that you're for him and not against him. Because if you're out to get him, what are you going to do? Gossip and chatter and get everyone to, to bring him down? If, you're, if, if the offended knows that you're holding it private, that's, that's a powerful show of love. It shows, hey, I'm, I'm for you in this. The third step is really that, um, is to bring it to the church. And this, I, I think it's clear, although not explicitly stated in the text, but if you look at the whole uh, teaching in the New Testament, God's design in the church, to bring it to the church really, I think, obviously needs to go through the elders who confirm the testimony of the witnesses and inform the church. Um, we see that clearly in God's uh, design for order in the church. You know, we're not supposed to tell it to the church. doesn't mean you show up on Sunday, stand up in the middle of whatever, and, hey, I've got some news for so-and-so. He's been out of line, whatever, and we've got witnesses. Obviously, we, we, have, the, we have the elders um, work through this to establish that and inform the church in a right way. This is a very significant step as the matter transitions from informal, personal conversations, that more intimate environment, that personal um, uh, conversations happening between two or three people, um, to formal discipline before the whole church. What happens at this stage, taking it to the church? What does this look like? Fortunately, we have an example of this exact step in 2 Thessalonians 3. Um, I'm going I'm to go there because I'm going to refer to a few verses in here. There's a, there's a picture of this very step. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm, um, verse 6 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother, so he's still considered brother, who is walking in idleness, He's, he's, he's walking in sin. This particular one is, is laziness, idleness. He's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now, he talks about idleness for a few verses, but going down to verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's commanding this brother in this verse. He's, he's calling him a brother. He's, he's in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's encouraging him to obey. He says, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So he's, he's not been put out of the church yet, but this is a matter now that we see as before the whole church. He says, as for you brothers, the church, <clears throat> do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. This person needs to be called out. This is not an anonymous person at this point. And have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed, that he may be ashamed 
Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So we're, we're withdrawing our fellowship from this person at this point. Why? That he may be ashamed. Why do we want this person to be ashamed? Does that go against this idea of it being about love and unity? Why do we want to bring shame on this person? Because it's the same reason we bring the law in the gospel. We need, people need to be able to fall under a godly grief that leads to repentance, and that's our hope through this process. If there's a loving fellowship, if someone is in a loving fellowship, they have friendly outings and relationships with, people, with those in the church, and then they, the, the whole church withdraws that fun, friendly, casual relationship, they withdraw that from that person, the hope is that that person really sees what they're missing and falls under a shame of the weight of that um, that corporate uh, care to that person, that they would fall under, under a shame and, and repent of what they're doing. So again, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. That's that step three of the church discipline process. So the relationship changes. Do not even eat with him. The casualness ends. The relationship now has a single limited purpose to bring about repentance, to discuss the issue at hand. So if you've got John, whoever is, is, the, one, is, is the one at issue here, and he's calling you up, hey, you know, can, we, can we go out for a round of golf this, this weekend? I'd like to hang out with you. What are we going to do? He's under church discipline. Well, you know, John, I'd love to be able to hang out with you. I really enjoy our friendship. But at this time, you, you know, we're, you're under a church discipline. And I'd love to be able to meet with you and talk about the issue at hand. Um, we're not going to pretend like there's nothing wrong in our relationship. We don't, we don't pretend like there's no issue here. And that's really, that's really what's going on there. It's not that you would never speak to the person uh, completely wall off everything because you're still in pursuit of that person, but there's that single-minded focus, and you drop the, the casual, fun uh, layer of it. You're not just to shoot the breeze and talk about the weather anymore. Um, <clears throat> the confidentiality is still to be respected at this level. Only the members of the church are to know about this. Church guests and the outside world have no business knowing about the church business and about this issue at this point. So when does this happen? Jonathan Lehman, in his excellent little book on church discipline, says, formal church discipline or excommunication is warranted when an individual seems to happily abide in known sin. There's no evidence that the spirit is making him or her uncomfortable other than the discomfort of getting caught. Rather, obedience to sin's desires are characteristic. That's the key word there, characteristic. And later he says, Formal church discipline should occur with, with signs that are outward, serious, and unrepentant. Now, I'd have to agree with Lehman that these marks help us define that line that when crossed warrants taking the caring and loving step of formal discipline. Ultimately, it always comes down to using wisdom and discernment. No doubt, some situations will be more difficult to discern than others. But these serve as great opportunities, don't they, to ask God for wisdom and trust his promise to give to all who ask according to his purpose? The final step to put out of the fellowship. 
Verse 17, the end there, it says, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's rough. I mentioned earlier that church discipline is not the church taking God's role to enact his retribution on sinners. The church has no role or responsibility there. But listen, the church certainly has the authority and indeed the command to make declaratory judgments as to who represents the church and who doesn't. This protects the name of Christ. To quote Jonathan Lehman again, he says, excommunication is a church's declaration that it can no longer affirm that a person is a Christian. Well, it's certainly a judgment call, but it's not condemnatory in the spirit and attitude that is prohibited in Matthew 7, that judge not passage. However, excommunication is most certainly a dire warning of God's condemnation. And when church discipline is executed faithfully, it carries the backing of heaven's approval. Look at verse 18. And really verses 18 through, through 20 all go together here. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is one of those um, often misunderstood passages, um, as it is just, I gotta say this first off, is this is not about holding prayer meetings and gathering in groups of two or three so that Jesus will show up and, and answer whatever you're praying for. Um, rather, this passage, in this context of church discipline, um, having to make the heart-wrenching decision to put someone out of the church, declaring to him and to the world that the church rejects this person's assertion that he is a Christian. This passage is critical as it provides the needed affirmation from God that he is with the church in its action to put someone out of the church or to restore someone back into the church. It is saying that as we follow this process according to his word, the church carries the authority of God himself. Jesus is providing a most necessary encouragement to the church as it seeks wisdom in a difficult matter. And when carried out faithfully, the church can know, according to this, that it is operating with the authority of the head of the church. Again, a biblical illustration of this we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 13. It says, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you, to, he's clarifying what he meant, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Why? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So church discipline is a church matter within the church. It is, he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes. God judges those outside. And he says, purge the evil person from among you. That's the final step of church discipline. But even there, is all hope lost? 
Have we just condemned someone to hell? Of course not. Not at all. We simply made it clear that we do not affirm this person's claim to be in Christ and will not tolerate his claim to the contrary because his sin brings reproach on the name of Christ. Even in this broken relationship, we're hoping for restoration. So having gone through that, and with the issue of really this whole process, what we're doing, we're hoping for restoration. Now let's look, what does that look like? What is restoration? Well, Lehman says, after a person has been excommunicated from a church, restoration is simply the church declaring forgiveness toward the person and reaffirming his or her citizenship in God's kingdom. So what does this look like when one who has, has, put, who has been put out is now restored? Well, what does it look like in the parable of the lost sheep? How about the prodigal son? Rejoice. Rejoice. Love compelled us to hope and work and pray for this event, and it has now come to pass. Rejoice. In Luke's account of the lost sheep, uh, we're in Matthew here, but in Luke's account, he says, and when he has found it, the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, just like that. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The return of the prodigal son shares a very similar illustration of what restoration looks like from the perspective of the church and how we're to respond. In Luke 15, 20 to 24, it says, And he arose, that's the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted cap and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus is teaching this is Jesus' teaching to us that as, as to what restoration should look like. He, he teaches through these powerful illustrations. It's really not so much a command that we celebrate that we see in this. It's more an observation of a heart that cares, will celebrate. This is to be a cause for celebration, just as it was for the lost sheep and the prodigal son when they were restored. The magnitude of this response should not be understated the text practically goes out of its way to emphasize just how great this occasion should be. We don't respond with, oh, looks like so-and-so is back in church. I guess he repented. That's cool. <laughs> you know, I guess he finally repented. An attitude of apathy in response to a brother's restoration is tantamount to despising that person. It's the same attitude that is condemned in the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son who did not want to celebrate. 
a loving heart will rejoice. It's an automatic response because it shows what we care about. We're also informed as to what restoration looks like in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. It says, Paul just says, For such a one, and this is someone who is being restored to the church, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. That, that withdrawing of the fellowship, that punishment is enough. That is the punishment of excommunication. So, verse 7, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. He is not to be, so that's, that's the end of verse 8. He's not to be seen or treated as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven when he's restored. There's no probationary period where we still keep him at, at, like at arm's length and, and watch him with a critical eye. No, once it is clear the brother repents and he's been restored, he's a part of our fellowship again. And we go out of our way to make sure he understands that. Jesus follows this instruction on church discipline with a lesson on forgiveness. The parable of the unforgiving servant, reminding us of his lavish forgiveness towards us, which motivates us and warns us to practice the same easy forgiveness, considering how much we've been forgiven and whom we've offended. Last thing to go over. What does restoration look like for the one being restored? What if I'm on the receiving end of church discipline? What should my heart response be? I'm going to go to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Look to your elders to guide you back to the way when you have gone astray. Understand that sin often lays hold of someone for a long time and develops harmful habits and ways of thinking long before it's exposed through church discipline. Nobody's walking in the Lord one day and then suddenly stumbles into a regular pattern of deceit and serious sin the next day. Therefore, in the humility of repentance, desire good counsel from your elders and seek to walk in it. Your elders carry a serious responsibility to watch over your life, that this passage tells us. Let them do this with joy. Cooperate with them. Submit to their authority. I'm sure we'll talk about more, of that, more about that next week as we learn about church membership. This is clearly God's design for his church. For you to not desire submission to your elders would be of no advantage to you because your elders watch over your life as those who have to give an account. Your elders are qualified to be able to assess the nature of the sin in your life and provide good counsel to bring you back to the way. That's the way with the capital W. They may ask you to read a certain book. They may ask you to memorize and meditate on certain scriptures. They may ask you to abstain from certain activities or break certain relationships or form new disciplines and new habits in your life. Submit to them. 
That is what humility and repentance, and repentance from sin does. But consider again the prodigal son who came back in the spirit of humility and submission. Let's obey this. Let's actually love one another and practice church discipline. Let's get that leaven out of there. And let's protect the name of Jesus by keeping his church pure as we represent him to the watching world, as we act as salt and light. One thing I, um, one thing I wanted to share about this is that that struck me really as I went through this, is, and I keep thinking it's so clear, but it's so neglected. Why is that? It's not, it's not a mystery. I was actually, I was going through this passage with my family one time, had, we occasionally, not as, not as much as I should, but we do family Bible time in the evenings, and I was going over this passage and uh, just reading, reading through the text, um, I, I was asking my kids for some observations. What do they see in this? And <laughs> there was this long pause. Mike, guys, come on, what do you see? And my son, he says, well, Dad, it's just so clear. You know, it's, it's, it's clear. We talk about, theologians talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, that it's not some hidden code that we have to uncover so we can figure out and obey. The word of God is, is, is close, it's near, it's, 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 it's clear, it's understandable. We don't have a reason not to do this. So let's obey this. I hope that, I hope that with this word of God, with this message of, of love and conflict and, and discipline, that we see the motive, that we see the hope, that we see the unity. And that with that right response, we are propelled to carry out church discipline. Because that's, that's the motive and heart that, that Jesus leads us through with this. Let me close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for love and discipline. We thank you that you have designed discipline to be this restorative act, this act that covers a multitude of sins, that, that frees us from ourselves. God, help us to see this straight, see this the right way with clarity so that we would be motivated by love and carry this through with love, that we would not despise our brother, but that we would be a family that can receive and, and they can receive discipline and have the love to go and tell our brother his fault when we need to. We thank you that this contrasts with the world who warps this message. Lord, help us to guide our, our thoughts and our way of understanding this. Thank you for your spirit that empowers us to, to know this and to do this rightly. We submit to you, Lord. We give ourselves to you in service to you.
and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.